I guess this is about everybody, so we'll get started. There's a bit more questions today, so I'm going to be a little bit more selective. Um, I tend to not be very concise, so I want to make sure I get all the, the important questions in. <clears throat> Understanding that it could take a lifetime to rid oneself of all the hindrances, is it possible to control them or something them just for one meditation session, just getting a glimpse of a jhana. Yeah, that's that's the point. The, the The hindrances are subdued to get into jhana, which means that they temporarily are not in your field of experience. They're temporarily subdued, but the root is still there. The root, they are also sangyojana, which are fetters. So those fetters are still there. They're just subdued for a little bit so that you can get into jhanas. And then as soon as you come out of jhanas, well, there they are again. They're there, they're there welcoming to greet you when you come out of jhana, which is why the Buddha came out of jhanas and realized, oh, well, this isn't the way to ending suffering. <laughs> so we had to go and find another one. <clears throat> How does one improve the power of investigation? Practice. Um, I think sometimes what happens is, especially kind of in the beginning, you kind of need prompts or need kind of like a suggestion of, well, well what am I supposed to be investigating? Or how do I investigate? Right, so there's maybe a little bit of a learning curve in the beginning as to you know how and what and what abilities of investigation you have. But once you kind of get past that learning curve, it's just continuously practicing, continuously investigating. You know, and when you uh, apply those powers of investigation to any of your experiences then you can learn from each one. And then sometimes you, you know, you remember you're in an experience and you're investigating. It was like, oh, this reminds me of when I was, when this was happening, right? So you can, you know, use that, that experience of investigation um, with each new thing that comes up. So you improve everything. There's a reason why we call it the practice. Everything is practice. The Noble Eightfold Path is the practice, right? Metta is a practice. So this is always something that we're building skillful habits. We're building skillful techniques to um, act and live in the world in, in more skillful and beneficial ways. Sometimes you might have to like, ask yourself a question. It's like, does, when I do a guided meditation, often when I'm talking about guiding into following the breath, I'll say, you know, ask yourself, what can you see? What can you feel? Right? That's a little bit of a prompt for your investigation. So if you're kind of going all over and I say, what do you feel? And then your mind is like, oh, okay, what do I feel? Right? So sometimes you can ask yourself these little prompts um, to help you with the investigation.
I've read that Vitaka and Vichara are indicators of the first jhana, but recently I heard in a talk from Ajahn Amaro that Vitaka is a condition for Papancha. Are these two Vitakas the same? If so, is there anything besides mindfulness that we can exercise to ensure that we have Vitaka paired with Vichara rather than Vitaka leading to Papancha? So it's the same. Vitaka and Vichara are two qualities of the first jhana. They are, so it's thought and examination, or thought and evaluation. It's essentially the two qualities of thinking that is happening in the mind. This is why the first jhana is considered to be um, very close to the hindrances, very close to, um, you know, falling out. And as you might hear, if Bhanteji talks about it, this is something that when you first start to get into the jhanas and you first come, reach the first jhanas, it's very tenuous. And you come in and it's really quick and, you, and the hindrances arise and you come back out. So this is, you know, this first level of jhana is the, what you would call the grossest level, you know, in terms of gross and fine. And so each level, each level of jhana is letting go of the gross aspects of the mind and the experience and abiding in more subtle. <clears throat> so the Vitaka and Vachara, the thought and evaluation are in the first jhana. But what happens is that as you master the first jhana, as you practice it, you naturally become kind of disenchanted with it, right? And so you want to go even deeper. And it just naturally happens that you slip right into the second jhana. And once you get this part of getting into the second jhana is Vitaka and Vachara go. So second jhana, you have... The, so the first jhana is Vitaka and Vachara, thought and evaluation, and then Piti Sukha. Piti is uh, um, usually translated as rapture or joy. And sukha is happiness. So those four qualities are what you find in the first jhana. By the second jhana, you have just piti and sukha. And then even by the third jhana, piti and sukha are too gross. And by the third jhana, you have mindfulness and equanimity, which is completely refined in the fourth jhana. So this is the, that's the, the, the level. So yeah, vitaka... Thought is definitely part of building up papancha. Papancha means to um, to propagate, to keep going. There's two wonderful. There's two terms that are that are kind of paired together that I love. One is papancha. The other one is called manyamano, and this is um, often translated as conceiving. This is how we conceive things. We conceive thoughts. We conceive are the self you know this is how we we create thoughts and thought worlds and all the the stuff that happens in our mind and so once you create it you propagate it so it's manyamano and then papancha um, and of course thought is a large part of doing that so it's the same Why is Sadhu always said without enthusiasm? Somebody knows Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> his, 
if they didn't, they wouldn't. That's the only way they. So yeah, no, it's usually sadhu means excellent. So it's like very traditional. It's just very like a like a out of reverence and honor. Like sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Like this is an excellent dhamma, right? And I agree. Those of you who know Ajahn Brahm, you know, he does it a little different to build up some enthusiasm. So he says sadhu. Sadhu, Sadhu, and so you can see like the whole everybody there. They all do it. I I did it with him when I was with him last year. Actually, it's kind of funny. So yeah, that's all it is. I mean, I don't personally think that you lose the reverence when you add a little bit of the enthusiasm in there. But yeah, do it whichever way you want. Um, although. At a retreat, probably not best to do uh, Ajahn Brahm's way. <laughs> Otherwise, sure. When you mentioned the simile of the hawk and the quail, you spoke of staying in your domain, not going in the domain of others, with regard to sensual pleasure. What is one's domain for a brownie or ice cream, for example? A reasonable serving for one person might be enough. For another, they want more and more. At what point do you avoid brownies and the equivalent forever? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I um, kind of related to the whole wanting the cool air thing that I was saying before. What I what I kind of find is like some, you know, I I take desserts and things, but sometimes if I notice that I'm like kind of craving it, I just like you know, it's going to be gone. I'm not going to, I have brownies now and maybe I'm going to want it later, but I'm not going to have, who knows the next time I'm going to have brownies. So a lot of times what that builds in me is this kind of like, eh, brownies are not that big of a thing, <laughs> you know, because it's like, I know that I'm just going to have them and enjoy them. And then I'm going to suffer because I, I'm like looking for brownies the next day and they're gone. All right. <clears throat> so, so I think that's when you kind of um, avoid the brownies forever, or at least you don't. You don't. You're not a. You, you don't get the same kind of enraptured, like feeling of oh, the brownies is so good and all these kind of things. <clears throat> but what the the domain? I mean, that's that's the domain is if you're in, if you're practicing Satipatthana, then you're not going to, you pick up the brownie and you're observing what's happening in your mind and you're observing, you know, the feeling of the brownie in your hand and all these kind of things. Well, then you're not like, oh, I want the brownie like that, right? So you are in your domain. You're eating whatever it is. You're staying in your domain and you're reflecting that this, you know, this food is for the nourishment of the body. You know, yeah, I can get, in, I can enjoy it and get raptured up in it that doesn't really benefit me much. Um, what benefits me is the nutrients that these, that this food is going to give the body once it's processed by the body. You can even think about that process, right? One of the things that I, I didn't mention, um, you can watch when you're practicing mindfulness of eating, you see how the food kind of gets mashed up and actually it starts to funnel itself before it goes down the throat. And if you examine, if you think about, well, what is that when it's doing that? Is that, uh, the, how, what does that look like compared to uh, what put you put in your mouth, right? We get that kind of, like how like, like birds and stuff, they feed their, their young 
by like the mother gets the thing, masticates it, and then spits it in their mouth. Right? It does. It's like, oh, it's disgusting. All right? So, but when it's coming in, it's great. Oh, it's this brownie. But once it's in there, we, oh, we have this disgusting thing. If we took it out of our mouth, we wouldn't want to put it back in again. All right? <laughs> so that's the, so when you're examining that, and it's again, it's not to be like, oh, brownies are stupid or, you know, it's just understanding, well, this is, this is what it is. You know, it, it's, you're not wrapped up in this fantasy world of brownies and, oh, this is wonderful and, and I love brownies and they're the best thing and I'm going to have them forever and all these things. You understand, okay, this is, this is food. And when you're that and when you're doing that, then you're in your domain. You're not in the domain of Mara and the Candyland. All right. Does Nimitta always appear prior to Jhana? What is the skillful and unskillful response when it appears? As far as I know, no, it's not a guarantee that you will have Nimitta before you go into Jhanas. <clears throat> so, I'll, uh, this question brings it up, so I'll kind of give my own story um, with regards to Nimitta. So there's a rule for the monastics that if you have, you know, attained jhanas or attained all kinds of superhuman states, you're not really, you're not allowed to tell people. But since I haven't, I can. <laughs> you're never going to hear Bhante Ji go, yes, I have attained the fourth jhana. And this is you, you, because it's against the monastic rules to, to say something like that. So, um, <clears throat> so. What, ha what is skillful and unskillful with response to when it appears? So when I had my first nimitta appear, I was at my desk at work before work. I would meditate often early in the morning before work um, at my office. And I had been going through a period of pretty deep, peaceful concentration where my breath came and it was the first time ever that I experienced the reality of knowing a hundred percent that I was not controlling my breath in any way. It was just a wonderful, peaceful, it was so easy to just follow the breath. The easiest I've ever experienced. It was ridiculously easy compared to all the years of me trying to, to do that. And so that is what I guess, what I found out, what I can understand now that is probably what's called excess concentration or jhana quality concentration. So it's there's qualities of jhana in there, but you're not in jhana yet. And so I was at my desk, and all of a sudden this bright star appears in my mind. And it's not like I can look at the light and I see like light coming through my eyelids. No, it's in the mind. So it's like HD 4K, boom, <laughs> right there. And I'm like, oh my God. I know what this is. It's a nimitta. And as soon as that, and it went, and it went away. It was gone. And so that's the unskillful way to react to a nimitta. <laughs> so what, what the reason, one of the main reasons I, I had that is because I've been a meditator for five or six years by that point. But I was like, oh, John is like, really far away I'm, I'm just you know I, I don't even I wasn't like oh I need to learn all about jhana and all these things so that's that's maybe for like 10 or 15 years down the road and here I have this experience of 
but I knew what a Nimitta was. I had been studying the sutras by that point. So I knew what it was. And because I knew what it was and I knew its implications, guess what? By that point, maybe my hindrances were almost subdued. But as soon as I saw that, the hindrances went, oh man, sensual, everything. Oh, this is great. And what it meant and like, oh man, I'm going to be a jhana practitioner and all these things. And all that flooded in and the Nimitta went, see you later. And I haven't seen the Nimitta yet again. That was four years ago. Actually, no, it was close to six years ago. <laughs> so what happens is, is that, that you kind of get the excitement of the nimitta when it arises. <clears throat> and I've spoken to Bhante Ji about it. I've, actually, it was one of the questions I was able to ask Ajahn Brahm. And what they, what they say is that the skillful way to manage the nimitta is as you practice, you practice, you, you bring the nimitta up, and you develop, you investigate it and you develop the equanimity towards it because that's the only way you're actually going to be able to get past the nimitta to go into jhanas is if you're every time the nimitta comes up the funny thing was what i observed happening was every for for about three or four months after i meditated every time i meditated after that nimitta came up i watched my mind trying to form the nimitta and I'm like, come on, that's not really the nimitta. It's like my mind was literally like craving it so much that it was trying to form the nimitta. And it was just really funny to watch the, my craving in that regard, to watch that come up. And so <clears throat> what I, you know, what my practice is these days is following my breath and, uh, and investigating the hindrances. That's what my practice is because what happened was after you know, I, I told you about the jhana retreat I came to. That was that retreat. That was in 2014, a couple of months before I actually came to live here. It was my last non-resident retreat, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to learn the jhanas from Bhante G. You know, um, and so then I learned about. Okay, I basically, I basically got close to jhana out of dumb luck. I didn't know how I got there, and that's what Bhante G's up here, and he's saying. You can get to jhanas, and then you don't know how you got back there. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much me. <laughs> okay, so what? You, and so basically, what what he taught was, he says, well, you have to know the pathway. You have to know how you get to the jhanas. And again, the largest part of that nine day retreat was hindrances, working with the hindrances, investigating the hindrances, calming your mind, practicing, you know, following your breath, all that kind of stuff. And so. And the, the, what I was telling you about how things become more refined as you go down, you know, to, from first to second to third, I learned that. Again, I've, I'm not a, I've not been there. What I told you was what I heard from Bhante Ji when he explained it. And I hope you guys get to hear that as well. And if you don't, ask a question about it. Make, it, make him really ex kind of explain to you those details of the jhanas because that will be very helpful. Um, what you don't want to do is get attached to it and be like, I need to get the jhanas. You know, it's like, I want to, I want the jhanas. I need the jhanas. Is that, that's just pushing you further away from it. Even me, I still see that in myself now that I'm a monk, right? Oh, I have these expectations, but I'm supposed to be a monk and I'm supposed to, now I'm a, I'm a teacher. And I'm like, oh, I, I need jhanas. Come on, come on, Jonas. It's like, you know, uh, gambling or something like putting the, come on, Jonas, right? Come on, get there. And no, it's not there. Well, what are you going to do? So that's just my practice. Uh, I, what I learned from Bhante Ji is just following my breath, 
observing the hindrances, applying the techniques to let the hindrances to sub be subdued, and then, you know, watch as the concentration becomes stronger, as tranquility becomes stronger, and all these things, these qualities. So it's unskillful to get attached. That's, that's where it's going to make things a lot worse for you. But of course, it's also natural, right? Like I can't help. I can't be like the nimitta comes up and I'll be like, okay, come on, Jay. Now don't do this and don't do that. That's just what arises, that excitement. So the more you, the more you practice and the more you investigate and know it, then the less that excitement arises. So, but I'm not there yet. So. Dear Bhante, how do you work with anger when it arises? When I have aversion towards anger, it seems to grow stronger. When I let myself feel the anger and not make it wrong, I feel more spacious and at peace. Am I missing something? No, that's... <clears throat> I think when I talk about how the Buddha talk, how strong the Buddha th thinks about anger and how we should abandon it, some people kind of give it this kind of, maybe I come across as saying it's like, you know, you're supposed to force it out of your mind or you're supposed to like repress it or not. You know, it, it's a feeling that it's arising. You know, you're never, you're not supposed to force anything out of your mind. You're not supposed to be like, you know, I'm such a horrible person because I have anger. That's, that's no, that's part of, having a mind and part of being a, a living being. So it's not that you're trying to physically do something to remove it out of aversion. What, what, I, um, what I would say is that you apply the techniques so that you can um, watch that as it goes away. You can't push it out of your mind. That's one thing that I've learned in all the years of my practicing. Anytime I try to push something, it pushed back 10 times harder. So you can't, you're not pushing it out of your mind. What you're doing is when you're trying to, like, when applying metta or applying compassion, like I was saying before, when you're applying that, you're, you're, what you're trying to do is set the groundwork for that anger to go away on its own. You can't grab the anger and say, go away and push it away. But you apply the techniques to counteract it so that it's not um, so powerful and invasive in your mind. And in terms of how do, how do, you know, how do I work with the anger when it arises, <clears throat> it's uh, pretty much like what I was saying before from that sutta. You know, sometimes I have to practice metta. Sometimes it's just to myself. I don't just practice metta to myself, compassion to myself. Sometimes it's, if there's another person, I practice to them as well. Um, sometimes I have to, you know, kind of tell, make myself accept that this is reality. Like this is part of living in a world with, uh, with a bunch of humans who all have greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Sometimes it's kind of just reflecting on that. You know, using these skillful reflections to uh to let the anger go away you know instead of if i you know if i have something in my mind that's arising the the us versus them right so oh they're they're one of those people 
they believe that way. When that arises, well, that's a, and I, when, and now it's automatic. I watch, it's like I can sit back and I watch, okay, the one part of my mind says, they're one of those people. And then there's another part of my mind that says, but they're also humans with greed, hatred, and like, like you can see like the, what do you, maybe even you could say like the, the angel and the devil, right? That you can see them kind of working, you know, fighting a, a little bit, going towards each other because I've trained my mind to, to be that way. I've trained my mind so that when anger arises, I apply these techniques. Uh, Bhante Sila calls metta a cooling balm, B-A-L-M, um, Sometimes, if you don't hear it right, he's, it sounds like he's saying bomb, but, but a cooling balm, B-A-L-M. And so that you, you apply that balm over the irritation of anger. That's also part of gaining, gaining a wider perspective, right? When you're wrapped up in the anger, your perspective is very limited. It's like a ground level perspective. But when you're able to kind of go above it, you have a wider perspective. You can see more of the, the causes and conditions that have led to that, whatever it is, that experience, that phenomena, that, you know, um, that situation. And that also can allow you to, um, that also can give you the insight to let the anger go away. Like there's a there's a wonderful um, one of Ajahn Chah's teaching. He uses the example of you're walking down the street and someone some person comes up to you and they're following you and they're cursing at you and calling you all these names. And he's talking about how like the rest of the day it's all just in your mind. I can't believe this person. I can't believe it. Blah 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 blah. <clears throat> and then he says, but then somebody comes up to you and says, well that person is mentally ill. They do that to everybody. And then all of a sudden, what happens in your mind? Oh, okay. And the anger goes away, you understand, right? And so all of a sudden, now, well, why am I being angry? This is silly. So that's, that's like having that insight and seeing that wider view of <clears throat> the anger can help you alleviate it. What did you mean by dry vipassana? So that's um, vipassana without jhana, without samadhi, without samatha practice. So that it's simply, basically, straight up just... Um, Satipatthana, just four foundations of mindfulness or four establishments of mindfulness. That's what is meant by dry vipassana. If I'm not mistaken, I could be, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Sariputta, the Buddha's disciple. So Mahamogalana was, was, and Sariputta were the Buddha's two chief disciples. Mahamogalana was the one who was the master of all the psychic, he could do everything. He'd like wiggle his toe and like the, the heaven shake and all these kind of things because he had that jhana and all that stuff. Sariputta couldn't even see devas. He couldn't even talk to devas. He couldn't do any of that. But he is the Buddha's foremost disciple on wisdom. So you can see the, the difference there. Sariputta has the, the, had the wisdom to become awakened, but he didn't have the the jhanas and the states and all these things. So that's what it means by dry vipassana. You know, not having the jhanas, not having the deep states of concentration. The hard, brutal way. <laughs> but it's doable. It's doable. <clears throat> 
I am rarely able to focus, concentrate on the breath. Can someone use anything else to build the concentration necessary for insight? Yeah, there's a bunch of things. Um, one of them is metta. You can practice metta. Um, I know a few monastics who actually don't do mindfulness of breathing. They use metta. Um, the one who is most prominent in doing that is uh, Bhante Analio. He uses, I think I remember him hearing him describe his practice and he says he uses like a, a you know, starts with a cute little bunny or something like that, which is not in the suttas, but if it works, it works, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there are people who practice metta because metta is a, is a samatha practice. Metta is a tranquility practice. It helps you to do that. Um, as somebody who has always been big on metta, uh, I'm somewhat surprised that that actually does, hasn't worked for me. <laughs> But, you know, that's part of the way it is. But so each person, you can try it and see what works. Um, yeah. And you could also do what I did, you know, practice Satipatthana. Practice that four foundations of mindfulness. And you never know, the breath might come to you like it did to me. How does samatha or samantha practice fit in with the jhanas? So samatha practice is the jhanas are part of the tranquility. Samatha is usually translated as tranquility um, meditation. So these are um, as opposed to vipassana, which would be insight meditation, if you want to make those two distinctions. Um, so all of the Essentially, almost all of the meditative practices other than insight would be, would fit under samatha practice, like mantra meditation, these kind of things. Um, you know, any of those very ancient, uh, meditation practices. So that all fits under samatha. The goal of samatha is one pointed awareness, tranquility, concentration in the mind. Jhanas are pretty much the the height of samadhi. They're the, the top of samadhi. The major leagues, if you will. How do you know the difference between first jhana and a glimpse of nibbana? Hmm. Nibbana is very hard to explain. So I don't know if you can... The, even the Buddha can't describe a glimpse of nibbana. So I don't even know if this question is answerable, um, that's the first thing. And secondly, it's probably not answerable by me. So <laughs> I'm going to put that aside. I have some questions about nimittas. Is it true that only white nimittas are good for jhana? I've never heard of a like colored nimitta chart or anything like that. So I'm, I'm not... The Buddha doesn't really talk a lot about nimittas. Like he mentions like samadhi nimitta, but he's not giving, you know, lots, a lot of descriptions of different types of nimitta and this and that. Um, so if so, what can be done about nimittas of other colors? I'm not sure. Um, are there nimittas for other senses? For example, a sound nimitta. Not that I've heard of. Because the nimitta is, is supposed to be a mind made. It's not from the senses. Like I said, it's not like I close my eyes and I see a bright light. It's literally something that's in the mind, in the creation of the mind. In that sense, is piti a sort of nimitta? 
No. Um, is Nimitta necessary for Jhana? I already answered that. How is Nimitta used for Jhana? It's just a sign. Now, um, <clears throat> you know, some people talk about like playing with the Nimittas. Some people just say, you know, concentrating. Um, you know, if the breath is gone and the Nimitta is there, you follow the Nimitta, that kind of stuff. Um, but it depends on the teacher. You'll hear, you know, four or five different ways of what you should do with the Nimitta. Um, and as somebody, you know my story, so it's not like I'm a master at it that I can describe too much about it. For a lay person, is the Sangha that we take refuge in a lay and monastic Sangha? Actually, yes, it is. <clears throat> in the triple, in the, the triple gem, the Sangha that you take refuge in is the Arya Sangha. It's not the people who shave their heads and, you know, put robes on. The Arya Sangha are men and women, lay people, monastics, who have attained at least the first level of awakening, Sotipana. So that's the Arya Sangha. So that's who you are <coughs> taking refuge in. And you're taking refuge in them because, well, they're regular people like you who followed the path and have gotten to the first level of awakening. <coughs> a lot of people kind of have trouble identifying with the Buddha, although the Buddha himself was just a regular person too. Um, and so sometimes it's a lot easier to like read like the, uh, you can go in the suttas and read like the verses of the elder monks or the elder nuns. And you can see like, oh, these were people just like me who followed, you know, the Buddha's teaching and became awakened and things like that. So that's what it's for. It's to, so that you, you know, kind of role models in your own practice that you take refuge in them, that they've followed the Buddha and that you can too. You can follow down that path. How does um, one get through the doubt of the Sangha, which has plenty of racism, sexism, sexual misconduct, etc.? Some spiritual, spiritually advanced teachers can still cause a lot of harm knowingly. Are they really spiritually advanced? See, this is, this is, this is a good question. This is something I could probably talk about an hour on, <laughs> but I have to make it nice and quick. Um, some spiritually advanced teachers can still cause lots of harm knowingly and still not change their behavior. This weighs heavily on my heart. <clears throat> There's that guy. What's his name? Um, some people might not like what I'm about to say. but <laughs> Chung Pa Rinpoche, I think his name is. He's called Crazy Wisdom. And he's a very well-respected, very te you know teacher. And he was a well, he was a monk at the time. Then he became a lay teacher. And he's drinking and drugging and having sex with his students and everything. He's a wise, wonderful, amazing teacher. Um, for me, he's not. He's just somebody who was you know the, whether I don't know his attainments. I don't know. But um, for me, and at least from the view of the early Buddhist texts. That's not somebody that you want to follow. The Buddha is very clear. It's like you to know somebody's to to really know somebody. You live with them and observe them and watch them for a long period of time. You watch their character. The Buddha even says, "This is you want to like examine the Buddha. You want to question the Buddha. Here, uh, look at these qualities. Like so, even be, the Buddha even is like saying, question me. You know, qual what is uh, you know, look at me." question me so it's perfectly acceptable to have that to you know to understand first of all are there spiritually advanced beings in the sangha sure 
Sure. There's spiritually advanced beings in the world. Of that, I have very little to no doubt. Um, what I would say is they're probably exceedingly rare. Um, so, you know, you, you can go into these things like, you know, I have this empowerment from this teacher or in Thai forest, you say, my, my teacher was an arahant or this or that. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of, you know, like that kind of almost an assumption that you're, you're a certain level of a teacher, so you must be a certain level of awakening. Um, and that's a very dangerous assumption. And uh, so it's perfectly good to, to question this. Um, the other important thing to understand is that putting on robes, you don't, you don't like, oh, I've reached a certain level of purity. I'm good now. I'm just going to put on robes. No, you put on robes so that you actually train to become that more perfect person. So when you put on robes, it doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden this wonderfully awakened being. You're a human being. You have greed, hatred, and delusion. If you want to know, if you want to see greed, hatred, and delusion, you can see it outside in the world. And if you come and stay with us for a couple of months, you can see it here at Bhavana. <laughs> That's the way it is. Anywhere that there's human beings, there's greed, hatred, and delusion. Anywhere there's human beings, there's chaos and order and all these kind of things. This is part of um, reality. Uh, one of the big things that... Um, for Westerners, at least, Westerners kind of have this real, this misconception about Buddhism that the, like, Buddhist people are somehow, like, above regular humanity. It's like, oh, these Christians and these people and all these people, they do all these things, but the Buddhists, they're somehow higher than humanity. You go to a Buddhist country or see what's happening in Buddhist countries. You can see that's not the case. Buddhist people are humans, too. We're all humans. No matter what we, no matter what designation we have, we're all human beings, you know, and, and even people who are like Sotipanas, you know, when you're a Sotipana, you still have greed and hatred and delusion, right? You can't maybe do like the worst kind of, you know, uh, actions, but you can still do stupid things, right? Um, <clears throat> even as a, um, as a non, as a want returner, you've only weakened greed and hatred. You still have it in you, right? So, you know, this is, uh, something that is important you know when you see this you know sexism and racism and all these kind of things in the sangha the, the in my opinion the right way to see it is, is this is you're looking at human beings right now um you know i think it's very important that there's uh any if there's any kind of this stuff that's very blatant and is very harmful to people then this should be uh addressed right there's a i recently heard there's some kind of big shakeup in the Thai Sangha now. Like every, every de couple of decades or whatever, they go through and they start defrocking monks and they start doing all kinds of things to kind of make the Sangha a little better, something like that. Um, I'm not a huge fan of, um, I'm a big fan of what, what would you call it, separation of robes and state. <laughs> and in a lot of Buddhist countries, it's very intermingled. Um, you know, so... Uh, and I think that allows for this kind of stuff to to become much more systemic and much more um, part of that. So don't so just remind yourself and remember that monks are human too. <clears throat> of course. 
we are supposed to be role models, right? We are supposed to be kind of, that's why, you know, uh, you know, you, people want the monks to be here meditating with you and stuff like that. Cause I remember when I was sit there and I'd be like watching the monks sitting and meditating, that was kind of like giving me some encouragement to meditate. Right. So monks are supposed to be role models in that regard. Um, but you know, they're human. Uh, so there's a, one of the biggest problems is we put monks on a pedestal, right? Like there's sometimes like I break rules, right? I'm not perfect and I have to confess rules. And sometimes I almost, it makes me almost feel like a hypocrite if I'm up here teaching and I break rules. But then on the other hand, I realize, well, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not pretending that I'm something that I'm not, right? I'm not trying to act like I'm perfect because I know I'm not, right? And I'm only, you know, so as long as, as long as you can understand that they're, they're really, they're, people are trying to be um, sincere in their practice, it, it helps not to be too critical, you know. Sometimes, it, you know, it, it's good for lay people. Lay, lay people are supposed to kind of hold monastics in check. Like that's the whole point. Like if you read the suttas and the vinya, lay people, if they have a monastic who is... Um, a bad monastic or is not doing well, you're not, you don't support that monastic. The Buddha says, don't support that monastic. Um, so, you know, the lay people have some power in that regard. Bhante, can you discuss some of the ways that jhana can be used for opportunities for insight to arise? Well, the, I think this is going to be pretty much the topic of Bhante Sila's talk tomorrow. Um, and since I'm, not a jhana practitioner, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can say is what I've learned. Um, I remember Bhante Ji's description of being of the fourth jhana, and I was like, wow. And like how, like the, the, because the fourth jhana is you have mindfulness and equanimity. That's it. And so with that mind, all of the other stuff, all of the, the gross things in the mind are subdued. They're gone. And you have this, this total clear, like a like a clear lighthouse on a clear night, clarity. And with that, if you all of a sudden you, um, in the suttas, like the Buddha will say to, um, in jhanas, you can reflect, this jhana is impermanent. This is unsatisfactory. This is not self, right? You can reflect on um the gratification the danger and the escape you convert so it's it's you can reflect is this john of me is it mine is it myself that's what that means by turning um you know going to uh using the jhanas to develop insight bonte sila will say switch to insight that's what he'll, that's how he says it you hear it tomorrow when you're in the jhanas then you switch to insight and so what that means is the buddha saying you use that you apply the, the techniques, the you know, gratification, danger, and escape, the three characteristics of existence, not self. You apply those and you use those within those um, within that area. So that's about as much as I can say about that. You talked about overcoming hindrances today. Do these hindrances only occur during meditation or do they occur in our life? They're anywhere, no matter what you're doing, everywhere. You know, there's, there's hindrances. Um, so no, it's not just when you're sitting down. Um, if you're not very practiced in terms of, um, 
really taking the ember of mindfulness with you and, and, and being mindful and being aware of everything you're doing, then it would seem like it, when you sit down, all of a sudden they invade, like they attack. <laughs> right? But they're always there. They're, in, they're, in, they're part of, they're in the mind. They're there. <clears throat> you know, and um, in uh, Satipatthana, when investigating the mind, it's like you investigate, is there greed in the mind? Is there no greed in the mind? Is there hatred in the mind? No hatred in the mind. Is there delusion in the mind? Is there no delusion in the mind? Is the mind contracted? It means very restless, you know, very uh, restlessness and worry. Is the mind, oh no, no, contracted would be sloth and torpor. Is the mind distracted? That's restlessness and worry. So the Buddha gives you these kind of, is the mind exalted? Is the mind not exalted? Right? So that's that investigation um, in terms of, you know, and you can do that, whatever you're doing, sitting in traffic, sitting at your desk at work, sitting on the cushion meditating, you can tune into your mind and say, okay, what, what's going on in my mind right now? You know, what, what are, what are, where, you know, what are these thoughts? Where are the thoughts coming from? Um, you know, that's, you do that anywhere, anytime. Should we be removing these hindrances all our life or only during meditation? You're always applying the techniques. Always, if you see the hindrance in your mind and it's, you know, you're sitting on the bus or whatever, apply the techniques. No, every time, if, if you're being aware and mindful and you see what's arisen, then you can take steps to um, set the groundwork for that to cease. Because if you're only doing that when you sit down an hour or two hours a day, if, if, if that, um, you know, then you're not really it's going to take you a long time to build up that habit. But if you're doing it throughout the day, no matter what you're doing, then it's becoming part of who you are. It's become part, it's becoming such habit that like I was saying, the it'll just, your mind will just go right at it. Right. You know, so you build up that, the habit and your mind will take it over. Like for instance, I, I developed the habit I, I learned from here. Bhante G uses, Sometimes we'll say, take three deep breaths. And so I use that. I develop that into before any time I wanted to, any time I start my walking meditation, sitting meditation, whatever meditation, I take three deep breaths. And so I develop that into a habit so that if I'm out, like my job with Child Protective Services, if I'm out in like in a really crazy situation and I just need to calm down to bring, to bring myself back to mindfulness, I just stop, take my three deep breaths, the mind is like, oh, okay, it's time to meditate now. It's time to be mindful now. And then the mind will just go quiet on its own. And that's just from developing it as a habit. You're not like, you're not, you're not like, come on, mind, be, you know, be mindful, right? Because the, you, it will only arise if you've set the conditions for it to arise. All right. So we're all set. Oh, my two days are done. Although I'm still coordinating the retreat and answering your questions and all that. So, and I'll be here um, with the Bontes as they uh, do their talks and their Q&As, which I'm looking forward to. All right, friends. Well, have a very good rest of the retreat. And we'll take a break now and come back to meditate.